We're in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Daniel prays for his people. Part 1 is going to be confession. Confession, if you would. Stand for reading God's word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it, has, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which, which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness that we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. Run to the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, but we have not obeyed his voice. This is the word of God. Please be seated. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? A lot of verses. Of course, you know, the theme of Daniel is God is sovereign. God is in control. God rules. He's in charge, even though the world seems like it's out of control. God's sovereign over nations, over rulers, and even over our own lives. Nothing happens by circumstance or accident or anything like that. God is in control and God is in charge. Last week, we talked about Daniel had a vision, and the vision was interpreted by Gabriel, an angel. So God, in his mercy and his grace, sends an angel to help Daniel understand the, the, the vision, but also to help us to understand the vision. We are also, I made a point that we are introduced to two uh, good angels in the Bible. One is Gabriel and one is Michael. They're the two named in the Bible. And also Gabriel is the first time that, a, that an angel is named in Scripture we see in Daniel. We see angels, but the first one that a name has been given to is in the book of Daniel last week. Now, David, Gabriel is going to describe what's going to be happening in the future. We know that Babylon has come to power. We know that, that, that Persia follows, and we know that Greece follows after that. And everything happened in succession. Everything happened in order just the way God said it would in his word. Now, remember, Daniel was written hundreds of years before these kingdoms came into power. It was even so specific that there would be that there would be a Medo-Persian empire, and the Medes would be a little bit lower than the Persians. The Medes would start out first in popularity and in strength, 
but Persia would eventually become the main power. The two horns kind of shifted power base. The Bible predicted it, and that's exactly what happened in history. Then we had Greece come on the, on the scene, and Greece had a ruler that just conquered by speed and by, by great tactician, was Alexander the Great, and he was a single horn, and he got broken off at a young age. The Bible said it would happen, and it happened in history just as, we, as the Bible predicted. The Bible also said that out of, the, out of Greece would come four generals. Two of them, the Bible is specifically talks about. One is Ptolemy, and one is the Secluid Empire. And out of the Secluid Empire comes an Antiochus IV, who is a picture of the Antichrist. He sets up a, the abomination in the, in, of desolation in the temple, Antiochus does. He sacrifices a pig, desecrates the temple, and is a picture of a coming Antichrist who will do much worse than that. He'll set, a, set himself up an idol in the temple, and he'll be demand to be worshipped as God. Daniel tells us these things. These things have happened in the past with Antiochus, and we can extrapolate from what has happened in the past, and Antichrist will come in the future and do what the Bible has said it would do. he would do. So with that, we know that he's going to be arrogant, he's going to rise against the people of God, and he's also going to rise against the prince of princes. We see that in 8.25 last week. The prince of princes, who is Jesus Christ, in his arrogance, in his hubris, he's going to have the armies of planet Earth rebel against Jesus' return and thinks that he can actually fight against the return of Jesus Christ. And we see in Revelation chapter 19 that Jesus dispenses with the Antichrist, the false prophet, very quickly, and the rebellers. And these, these two guys are thrown into the lake of fire. And in Revelation chapter 20, God deals with the arch enemy of God, that would be Satan, he binds him with one angel, binds him, casts him into the pit for a thousand years. So who's in charge? God's in charge. doesn't matter how arrogant Antichrist is or Antiochus or any other ruler that comes to power on this earth. Our God is in charge. He is orchestrating things throughout the planet, planet earth. Now this week, in chapter 9, Daniel has lived through the Babylonian captivity. He is serving under the first Persian ruler. Now, the text here calls it Darius, and I, I think that Darius is a title like Pharaoh. Okay, so I think it's really Cyrus is the one. Now, there's a debate about this and, and how you look at the scripture, but just for our time, we'll just call it that he, this person is Cyrus. And he, he realizes, Daniel realizes that the 70 years of captivity is about over, and he prays and he intercedes on behalf of the people, and he starts out with this prayer, prayer of confession. So this week, Daniel prays for his people, part one, confession of the sins of the nation of Israel. So that brings us up to speed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. And as always, Lord, we just ask that you would reveal truth to us. Lord, if you don't reveal and show us what's going on in these chapters in Daniel, we're not going to understand this. So Holy Spirit, illuminate the scripture to us. And I pray that it is rightly divided today, Lord and that you are glorified, Lord Jesus. Again, thank you for each person that's here. No one's here by coincidence, no accidents with you. We have a, an appointment to meet with our God today and hear this teaching. Speak to our hearts, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Judah's been in captivity for almost 70 years. There's some debate whether it's, he's in the 68th, 69th year of captivity, but he knows that it's coming to an end. 
Daniel knows it's coming to an end. So the question is this, just in the introduction. Why 70 years of captivity? Why in the world are 70 years of captivity? Well, the answer to that is pretty simple. The nation fell into persistent idol worship. Now, they worshipped idols, but they also worshipped God. They tried to combine the idol worship with God worship, and that will never, ever, ever work. God demands that we choose him or our idols. He will not settle for second place. He will not settle for a comparison. He will not settle for something like, like, like they're equal. He will cause you to choose. And his, his heart is turned from the idols. So what does God do? He sends prophet after prophet after prophet to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel ignores it, ignores it, ignores it. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 21 through 29, we see how God views the idols. He looks at them as useless. They can do nothing. They can, they can perform nothing, and they can't predict anything that's going to happen. Only our God can do that. No earthly idol can do that. He also says in Ezekiel 18, 21 through 23, he talks about that God's heart is, not, is that the people turn and not perish. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should perish? The heart of God is no, turn and live. That's his cry to humanity, turn and live. So that's what he's dealing with. The people have persistently and consistently ignored the prophets, ignored the word of God, and have gone the way of the culture. It kind of sounds like where we live today, doesn't it? God is patient with people. God is patient with nations. But there comes a time when he says, no more. And the sins of Manasseh, the king Manasseh, reach a pinnacle in the nation of Israel. And with his sins, God says, no more. You're going into captivity. In 2 Kings chapter 21 through 29, we see the sins of Manasseh. He was, he was an awful king. And he, he, he just was beyond anybody else in the nation of Israel. He did these things. He rebuilt the the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up the altars of Baal and made wooden images. Made wooden images. He worshipped all the host of heaven. That's what the Assyrians did. All of the angelic realms of heaven, the demonic realm, he, he worshipped. And he, and he also served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And then he did this. The crescendoing point was this. In, in, in 2 Kings 21.6, he also made his son pass through the fire. He sacrificed his son on an altar to a false god. And then he practiced soothsaying, witchcraft, and consulted spiritists. He was in the demonic, he was in the occult, and God said, enough, no more. No more, nation of Israel. You are going into captivity. You have gone too far. You have gone too far. Now, there's an important thing to remember here. God says enough. When a nation who had the blessings of God, the protection of God, has been provided for by God, turns away from God and are corrupted, corrupted by the culture they're in and turn from God. The final straw is this. And if you would, turn to Ezekiel chapter 22. So Ezekiel chapter 22. So hear this. The final straw is when the government is corrupt, that would be the king. When the religious leaders are corrupt, that's the prophets and the priests. And when the people are corrupt, 
God says, no more for that culture. Enough is enough. And he takes them into captivity. We pick up the, the, the writings in Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, Israel, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. That is the day of my wrath. You are, you are, you're experiencing a day of my wrath. The conspiracy of her prophets, and that word actually means princes or government, in her midst is like a roaring lion. They pray. They have devoured the people. So the, so the governmental authorities are corrupt. Just skip down to verse 26. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. If you skip down to verse 27, her princes and more government in her midst are like the wolves tearing the prey to to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. And then her prophets have pl plastered them with untempered mortar, meaning they've ignored the word of God, they've ignored God, and they've done wrong, seeing false visions, divining lies. For they say, thus says the Lord, the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. And then finally, in verse 30, God says this, For I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap. I sought for somebody in the nation of Israel and say, no, no to this evil and stand up that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Folks, when the government is corrupt, when the prophets and priests are corrupt, when the people are corrupt, God says enough. And I'll tell you, that's a scary place to be in America today who is based and built upon biblical principles. The foundation of our government was from the, from the Bible and the Ten Commandments and the law of God, and we have abandoned that today. And I, it's not just our government that has abandoned. Our prophets and our priests, our, our, our religious leaders have abandoned it, and the people have gone wild in this country. We're following along the same path. So the reason for captivity were the sins of, of, of the nation, the sins of Manasseh when they peaked. But the length of captivity was in 2 Chronicles 36.21. They broke the land Sabbath for 490 years. They're supposed to let the land rest once every seven years, and they refused to do it, and they didn't think, Any, this is no big deal. God's not serious about this. And, oh, yes, he is. He gave them a law in, in Leviticus, and he said, you are to let the land rest. This is a command that I give you. It's a picture of your rest that you're supposed to have. And the people ignored it, and God says, you're going to pay me back one in seven. 490 years, you're going to give 70 years of captivity. And Jeremiah knew that this 70 years was coming to an end. Now, with that background, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 3, Daniel realized 70 years are ending. 70 years are ending. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, so this is, this is just after Belshazzar was disposed of, and now this is the first year of Cyrus coming to rule. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel was in the word of God, even in captivity, even in a culture that was running from God, Daniel was in the word of God. And that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. That desolation, whenever you see that in scripture, it means, it means destruction, it means rubble. Rubble or destruction. Then I set my face toward the Lord God, 
to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Seventy years are ending. How does Daniel know the 70 years are ending? Because he reads a letter written by Jeremiah from Jerusalem to those in captivity. If you would, turn to, to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1 through 14. We'll just take a few selected verses out of this, but I want you to pick up on a couple things here that I think are significant. So Jeremiah is still in the land. Remember, there were three waves. In 605, they took the prime meat. They took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, about 50, 75 prime young guys. They took them into captivity. Then there were two other waves that came. Daniel is, is reading this, realizing that the seven years of captivity is coming to an end. Jeremiah has written this from the land to those people that have been transported into Babylon. And at the very end of this, verse 3, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, actually receives this letter. And I believe this is what Daniel is reading in his time. Daniel, uh, Jeremiah's letter. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of armies, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive. Now watch this. Whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. In verses 5 through 7, he says, settle in. Settle in. This is a fait complete. You are going to Babylon. You are going to captivity. You are to settle in, build your houses, have families, assimilate into the culture, pray for the, for the city that you've been transported to. In verse 8 through 9, there's false prophets that are saying, oh, no, this isn't going to happen. Jeremiah's off his rocker. Jeremiah's off his rocker. This is, and, he, and God is very convicted. He says this, Do not listen to your prophets or your diviners who are in your midst and deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you, which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. In verses 10 through 14, we have the promise. This is a promise to the nation of Israel. Now, we have heard this many times, and the church has taken this as a promise for themselves. Look, at you, this is a promise specifically to the nation of Israel. We can have a principle here, but it's not a promise for us today. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, specifically talking to those in captivity, that are going back to the land, back to Jerusalem. That's who this is addressed to. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you to the place in which I cause you to be carried away from. Notice God is taking responsibility for this. No one can say Nebuchadnezzar did this. So let's just kind of go through this just a little bit. Daniel is in Babylonian captivity, and he reads this letter. He has not caved in to the culture that he was in. He did not become Babylonianized. He did not assume that the, the character of the culture. He continued to read the Word of God, which kept him separated from the culture. There's nothing new under the sun here, folks. The remedy, the antidote against cultural indoctrination is simply this. 
Study the Word of God. It is not magic. It is simply something you have to do in order to not be indoctrinated, particularly today when there's so much information just beaming in at us constantly. Jeremiah tells the people the truth. He writes to the captives of Nebuchadnezzar a letter. The true prophet always gives a true word, even if it's uncomfortable. A true prophet gives the true word. Jeremiah 29, 4 says this, God caused the people to be carried away. Sovereign God did. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was simply a vessel which God used. It was, not, it was God who did this. And he tells them to do several things. He says this, Jeremiah says, settle in. Don't listen to the false prophets. This too shall pass. You will be here for 70 years, but it will pass, and I will bring you home. I will bring you home. Now, I want you to think about something. Jeremiah says, settle in. He says, live your lives. Don't fight it. Seek the peace of the city. In verse 8 and 9, he says, don't listen to the false prophets. Look at they're all over the place. They're coming at us in droves. They exist today, I want you to know. False prophets with a false word. They prophesy falsely to you in my name, he says in verse 9. Now again, are there false prophets today? And you can just say a resounding, yes, there are. Now we have, what would I consider a false prophet? I think a false word from God would be the health and wealth nonsense that we hear all the time on Christian TV. I think the New Apostolic Reformation would be a false gospel. What is that? Well, the church is going to take over government and media and education and about seven mountain mandates, and we're going to just take this thing over, and, and it's like rah, 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 and we're going to usher in the kingdom of God. I don't see that in the Word of God. I see things as deteriorating, getting worse, as it was in the days of Noah. Look, at it, we're not ushering in the kingdom of God. Jesus comes and ushers in the kingdom of God, not us. He comes and saves us. He comes and saves us. Don't listen to the false prophets. In verse 10 through 14, he says, This shall end after 70 years have completed. I will visit you. Now, I want to review something with you. This is so important. I want to review this with you. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15 and 16, he's going to give us a word of summary about what's going on here. And this is the fall of Jerusalem. And the Lord, verse 15, 2 Chronicles 36, 15, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, who are the prophets, who are the prophets, rising up early and sending him because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet because he cared for the people. He loved the people. He wanted them to turn and live. He knew the consequence that was going to come their way. And yet they resisted them. Watch this, verse 16. Tell me that this isn't happening today. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no remedy. And he sends the Chaldeans, he sends Nebuchadnezzar, he sends Babylon to defeat them and take them into captivity. And he does this in verse 21, it says this, to fulfill the word of the Lord by his mouth of Jeremiah, that the length of it will be until the land has enjoyed her Sabbaths. Leviticus 25, 2 and 3, they ignored completely. 
God wasn't really serious about that. Oh, yes, he is. He's very serious about his word. He doesn't take it lightly. So, let's just get a couple things out of this that I want you to get. How are the true messengers of God treated? They are mocked, they are despised, and they're scoffed at. There's nothing new under the sun here, folks. Listen to this. Jesus told us what to expect in John 15, 18 through 19. He says, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. He says, I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We have the word of God. People are not going to be all hilariously happy when you bring them the truth of the word. They're just not. You can expect this. You can expect this. Don't be all shocked. Oh, this is, I'm just blown away that they didn't accept me, particularly today as the nation falls farther and farther from God. Farther and farther from God. It happened then and it happened now. The principle is this. Is this. In the Old Testament, when there was a problem, God sent a prophet. A prophet with the word of God. He sent a prophet to the king, and he sent a prophet to the people, and the people ignored it. They just dismissed the prophet summarily. The result was the wrath of the Lord rose against the people. And I want to take you on a little journey here, so please listen up. The wrath of God is the word kema. It's C-H-E-M-A-H, and it means wrath, heat, anger, rage, indignation. Does God get mad at his people? Yes, he gets mad at his people who rebel against him. Now, how did God demonstrate his wrath? He sent Babylon. Now, I want to make a suggestion to you. It has nothing to do with this teaching, but it will in the future. There are people that believe in a mid-trib rapture, a pre-wrath rapture. And they look at the pre-wrath rapture as occurring in Revelation chapter 6, with the sixth seal judgment. And there's an argument that Antichrist is not the wrath of God. The first four seal judgments are the Antichrist exerting his wrath on the earth and killing a whole bunch of people. And I want to suggest to you that God uses the Antichrist. Jesus, remember in Revelation chapter 5, is unrolling the scroll and demonstrating what the tribulation is going to be. And I'm suggesting that God uses Antichrist to exert his wrath on the earth. You have him coming as a peacemaker on the white horse. You have him on the red horse, with the, which is war. You have the, the black horse, which is, which is famine. And you have the pale horse, which is death. And one-fourth of planet earth dies. Now that is wrath. That is wrath. Daniel knew by reading Jeremiah, that the 70 years were about over. And I can tell you that we know, by reading the Word of God, that life on earth is changing. It's going to change. Things are not going to be the same. Our future is bright in that Jesus is coming for us, but things are changing, and it's going to change for Christians on earth. It's changed throughout the rest of the world. And folks, it's coming to the shores of America. Life for Christians is changing. We must band together, do life together, 
encourage one another together to make it through the mess that is coming in the future. I'm not a prophet, but I do read the Word of God. And I realize that life is changing in America. And you're not a prophet, but you get CNN and Fox News, and you can see that life is changing in America. So, read the Word. It's not magic. You have to read the Word. And know this. What does Daniel do when he knows that this thing is ending? He prays. He prays. And notice how he prays. How often has you, have you heard someone say, pray really hard about this? Oh, I, I think that's what we should do all the time. Pray really hard about this. Daniel set his face towards God. That's praying really hard. Focusing on God. I'm coming at you, God. I need an answer to this prayer. Help me. It's all out engaging God. It is not, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I I praise the Lord my soul to take. I mean, we say so cursory to say these things very rapid succession without any thoughts about it. No, that's that's not turning your face towards God. Turning your face towards God is focusing everything on him. He prepared by fasting, sackcloth and ashes. He had a right heart, a right mind, a right spirit. Then he entered into his prayer, and his prayer starts with confession. Confession. Lord, this is what we've done. Lord, this is what we we have fallen short. Lord, forgive our sins. In verse 4 through 14, Daniel's prayer, part 1, is confession. I want to read to you verses 4 through 9. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God. Notice how, first of all, he starts with praise. That's a a great, that is the way, that's the Pax thing. Praise, adoration, confession, thanksgiving. Starts out with praise. Thank you, God. I praise you, God. You get up in the morning. Thank you, God. I praise you, God. Another day is before me. I don't know what's going to happen today, but I know you're in this day. And I thank you that you're going before me. I thank you you'll make a way. Praise him. No matter what's going on. Great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with mercy and mercy with those who love him, and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. starts to confess now. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. We have turned our face from you, God. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the peoples of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you but to us, shame. Shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those near and those far off, in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithfulness, which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To our kings and to our princes, our leaders, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness though we have rebelled against him. He sets the stage. Daniel made confession. First of all, who did he confess to? God. God. That's who we confess to. You know, it it says in James that we are to confess our sins to one another, but look, we confess our sins to God. We might come to somebody else to help us with this some issue, but it's to God that we confess our sins. Confession means this. It simply means we agree with God. I have sinned. Just that simple. No excuses, 
no cover-up, no blaming others. Like David, when he sinned against Bathsheba and had Uriah killed and that whole thing, he said, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. Against you. Note how sin occurred in verse 5. Departing from your precepts and your judgments, they ignored the word of God. Folks, the journey to your fall, the journey to your indoctrination into the world, the journey into a troubled life is that you get away from the word of God. You get away. You, you replace it with something else. That's the beginning of it. I've not, we have not heeded the prophets in verse 6. They would not hear the men of God that warned them, turn and live, turn and live, turn and live. Now, think about something. Think about where we live today in America. Think about where we live today. The majority of the government, the majority of education, the majority of, uh, of the media in particular, ignore, even degrade God and his word and degrade God's people. Degrade God's people. And many Christians, Christians, everybody's a Christian. You know, everybody has the label. I'm a Christian because I'm not a Muslim or I'm not a Hindu. I guess I'm a Christian. Oh, no, you're a Christian if you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried, rose again from the dead, and you believe and you receive the gift of salvation. Then you're a Christian. Then you're a Christian. But a lot of so-called Christians pick and choose what they want to believe. Pick and choose what Paul acting as a watchman in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, says this, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, the entirety of the Scripture of God. Look at Scripture is not a smorgasbord. Where you, oh, I'll take a little of this. Oh, I like the love and the kindness and the gentleness, but I think I'll forget a little bit of the holiness and the wrath of God. I don't want any of that stuff. Don't talk to me about sin. Because I want to come out of here feeling hip, hip, hooray, how great and wonderful I am. We take the whole counsel of God. There's a time for hip, hip, hooray. There's a time for introspection, examining our lives to see where we're at. So, he talks about the majority, the majority of women in that nation were given over to sin, and I suggest to you the majority in this country are given over to sin. So a question that you have to ask yourself is this. What is sin. What is it? Sin is it just, it's defined as missing the mark, being off target, falling short of God's standards. You know what God's standard is? Perfection. Perfection. Something we cannot attain. It's breaking the law, breaking the Ten Commandments. And remember this, for everybody who thinks that they are such a wonderful, terrific person, that I am just better than you and you and you. Oh, listen to this. The Ten Commandments are viewed as a whole. If you break one, it is the same as breaking all of them. How do I know? James chapter 2, verse 10 says this, Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point is guilty of all. Nobody can meet that standard. Nobody can meet that standard. Well, that's sin. That's sad, isn't it? What about iniquity? Iniquity means this, to be bent over or crooked. No human, it's, it's just, it's how we go through life. If we really were to view ourselves, so often humans are strutting around, you know, how great I am, get their chest all pushed out, you know, particularly if you're in athletics, you know, you know, how great I am and that sort of thing. Hey, this is how we really are looking, bent over with our iniquities. The load is heavy on us. 
weighing us down. No human can meet the perfection standard. And that is the reason why we need a Savior. <laughs> we need a Savior. And then what did God do? God sent his only begotten Son to die for us. John 3.16 is so great. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, it's a universal, it's come into the family. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his Son into the world, condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's his heart of God, his salvation. Come, come. Israel's main sin was idolatry. And remember this, God hates idolatry. Second commandment is you shall not make for yourself an idol or bow down to anything. So what is idolatry? That's a question. What is idolatry? Let's allow A.W. Tozer to help us with this definition. He says this, when one substitutes for the true God, one made after his own likeness, always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it. I want my idol to be what I want it to be. It's not going to be like God. I want to do my, I want to do my own thing. I want my idol to be what I want it to be. Idol can be anything that you place above God. Anything. They're good things. You know, people have families and children and, and work and health and all that that you can, you can make that an idol. You can put that before God. That is more, more important to me than anything in the world. And of course, there's the bad things of, you know, all the sins that we talk about, addictions and all that, that sort of thing. We're very familiar with that. But an idol can be anything. Daniel, in, in verse 7, reminds us that God is righteous and God is holy, and I don't think we have a clue have a clue of the holiness and the righteousness of God. Not a clue. That even that you know that you can't, we can't even stand before God in this, in this form. We'll just disintegrate. We will be blown away. How do I know this? Because Moses in, in Exodus chapter 33, 18, 22, asked God, he says, show me your glory, God. Show me your glory. Show me the kabod of God, the heaviness, the weight of God. Show me the glory of God. And guys, I can't do that with you, Moses. But I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And when I pass by, you can see, see my backside, but you can never see my face. You can never see my full glory. You, you'll die in, with that. Who are we? And who is the cleft of the rock a picture of? Jesus Christ. We're, high, we're covered by Jesus. We're covered by his righteousness. Now God sees us as he sees his son, holy, pure, and clean. That's what happens at salvation. Anything else falls short of that. We are, can be in the presence of God because we're covered by, in the cleft of the rock, so to speak, by our Lord. By our Lord. The kabod of God. The glory of God. Covered by God. And then we have to deal with this shame. Daniel talks about the shame the people had. The shame of faith. It is a cast-down faith. Verse 7, we see righteousness belongs to our God, but to us shame. Verse 8, to us belongs shame of faith. Daniel is pulling no punches. You know, it's difficult today in America to see embarrassment. There used to be people would blush. People don't blush now. Shame. I mean, this is, this is the ultimate end of me doing life my way. It's just, oh, 
Oh, I wish I wouldn't have done. I wish I wouldn't have gone down that road. Shame. Shame. The entire nation was shame. Prophet, priest, king, the people all turned from God, all experienced this shame. In verses 10 through 12, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. We have not. And thus we have experienced the curse Moses wrote to us about. Look at this. People, listen. There's a principle here. Then and now. Then and now. We choose blessings or we choose curses based upon a simple thing. Obedience to God or disobedience to God. It is that simple. You just look at people's lives. Now, I'm not saying if you're obedient to God, everything in your life is going to be just wonderful and terrific, and, but it's going to be a whole lot better. It will be a whole lot better. You're living in a fallen world where bad things are going to happen to people. It's not going to be all great and wonderful, but it's always better than disobeying him and turning away. And more on that in just a second. You're going to see, see this. Listen to this. Every Jewish person was familiar with, at least some extent, with the Torah the first five books of the Bible. And they knew Deuteronomy 28, blessings and curses. They knew Leviticus 26, blessings and curses, and consequences for your, for, for your life and, and what you've done. Leviticus 26 says this, If you do this, if you keep my statutes and my commandments, I will give you rain in season. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage. I will give you peace in the land. You'll have victory over your enemies. I will look on you favorably. Your life will be so much better. In verse 14 on, he says, but if you do not obey me, then you're going to have all kinds of terror will overtake you, wasting disease comes on you, fever, sorrow of heart. My face is set against you. I, want, I didn't write this in my notes, but hear this. The blessings of God are these. Three main things. His presence his provision, and his protection. To experience the curse of God, all God has to do is take his hand off, and you do not experience his, his presence, his provision, and his protection. And then your life unravels. Just that simple. Just that simple. But I also want you to remember this that God is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. He is a long-suffering God. Lamentations 3.22 gives us a little bit of indication about how gracious and how compassionate God is. This is written by Jeremiah. And this is written as Jerusalem is under assault by Babylon. And notice what Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3.22. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Or I like the NIV. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. The, the whole country is being destroyed. And Jeremiah, with the heart of a prophet, with the heart of a man or a woman of God, has his heart set towards God. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my por portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. My hope for, for a new day is in the Lord Jesus. It might be bad today, but I have a hope for tomorrow. If you skip over to verse 31, he says this, 
for the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion. I'll tell you, that's, a, that's good news. Good news. According to the multitude of his mercy, for he does not afflict willingly. God is not all hilariously happy because he has to deal with his people. He has a grieved heart. He doesn't do this willingly. He doesn't deal with us in this way. His heart grieves when we go off. It grieves when we take a wrong turn. But yet he loves us. And true love, an expression of love, is bring them back to the truth. And he will leverage on us whatever has to be leveraged on us to bring us back into the truth. And it's because he loves us. People often say, oh, you don't love me because, no, that is love. That is love. For he does not afflict willing nor grieve the children of men to crush one's feet. And in verse 40, the cure for this all, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed, we have rebelled, and you have not pardoned God. Turn back to God. That is what he's saying. Verse 13 and 14, the state of the nation of Israel. The state of most humanity is an unrepentant heart. God's cry is to repent and turn. Verse 13 says this, We have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn and repent from our iniquities, our crooked walk, and understand your truth, O God. We haven't done that. Why don't people do that? What, why are we so resistant? You're going to get that in the conclusion. There was no repentance. God, as a last resort, a last resort. This is hundreds of years from Isaiah, the Babylonian captivity. This is prophet after prophet. This is hundreds of years. He is long-suffering. He sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem and the temple, the place where, and they were put in the captivity for 70 years. But he gives them the promise that they will return in Jeremiah, that they will return and he will bless them after 70 years. Daniel knew to pray because the 70 years were up. In conclusion, Daniel prays for his people, part one confession. Now, thinking about prayer, thinking about, and I think prayer is this, when we become one with God, it is my spirit to God's spirit. It is simple communication. God is a relational being. He wants to have relationship with his people. If you love someone, you will give them your time. And he desires time with us, to talk with him, to communicate with him. Daniel prayed. Jesus prayed. The disciples prayed. The early church prayed. We prayed, and we are encouraged to pray. But let me ask you this question. You may ask this. Why pray if God, who is sovereign, already knows what he will do in any situation. Why pray? Is that a good question? You ever think about that? The answer is this. Why pray? The answer is simple. Because God tells us to pray. Not rocket science. We're not pulling something out of, out of deep thought here. God tells us to pray. Just an example. Just an example. One verse. Matthew 7, verse 7 through 8. It says this. We see Jesus giving this instruction. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For askers will receive, whoever seeks, find. Whoever knocks, the door shall be opened unto him. That is the command. 
And it is written, this is a little Greek here, so just zero in on this. It's the present tense, which means it's ongoing. It's occurring now. It's ongoing. And it's imperative. It's a command. So it's an ongoing command. What is he saying? Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Keep on praying. And hear this. I don't know how this works, but somehow, some way, God uses our prayers in fulfilling his will. Our prayers matter to him. He wants us to engage him, to talk to him, to believe him, to trust him. God is relational and truly desires a relationship with you. Talk to him because he cares for you. What does James 5.16 say? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Somehow, in the way that God structures the universe, he knows what we're going to pray and how we're going to approach him. He uses our prayers in fulfilling his will. Isn't that amazing? That's a big God. All these billions of people, and he's working it all out. I mean, that is an amazing thing. Now, Daniel didn't have... 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. But I believe this is the key to prayer. It says this, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know that's how, that's how, the, that's how the, the man or the woman of God approaches God. Not my will, your will, God. Your will be done. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Let me ask you a question. In our study of all this time of Israel being in captivity, did Israel ever pray? Did you ever see the nation repentant and praying? No. Through all the mess, they did not pray. There's a lesson for us. The lesson is this. In the mess of life, in the don't understands of life, we turn to God as a first resort, not a last resort. You ever hear this? Oh, no, all that's left is prayer. Oh, we have to resort to that to get... No, that's the first thing we go to. It's our first choice. Israel ignored God. Israel ignored prophet after prophet. And let me ask this question. Why do people not pray? Why is it hard to get some people mobilized on on a midweek to come to a prayer service? Why is it difficult for people to come to a men's prayer on Saturday morning or a woman's prayer thing on Thursday? Or it's a group prayer on Thursday, men and women. Why is that so hard for us? Ask yourself that question. Why do people not repent when warned? And I just ask this, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with humanity? Could it be a reflection of the condition of our hearts? So we'll do anything not to pray. Prayer is discipline. It is not easy for humans to be disciplined. We want to just do our own thing, kind of casually graze through life, let it all just happen. A disciple is a disciplined person, and prayer is part of a disciple's life. Let's allow this to help us. John Phillips, in his expository commentary, exploring the book of Daniel, makes this observation about repentance and prayer. He says this, Did the people repent when Babylonians first appeared in Jerusalem? No. 
Did they repent when Jerusalem fell later in 605 B.C.? No. Did they repent when the second Babylonian expedition appeared in Jerusalem? No. Did they repent when Zedekiah was summoned to Babylon in 594 B.C.? No. No. Not at all. Did they repent when Jerusalem fell last and was sacked in 586 B.C.? No. Did they repent while they were in Babylonian captivity? No. They didn't even do it then. The principle is this, is that, that one is unlikely to give attention to God's truth or prayer, his word or prayer, without a sincere turning from one's iniquity, from one's sin, without real repentance. A real repentance is I'm turning to God and I am going away from this life. I am not going back here. I am turning to you, God. I am turning to you. Repent and pray. This is our lesson. Keep praying. I have sinned against you, God. Against you and you only have I sinned. Keep praying. Start with confession. I have sinned. The prayer that God hears is a confessed, repentant, contrite, humbled heart. This moves the heart of God. In life, through all the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, pray and keep on praying. Somehow, some way, God's will is carried out, and our prayers are involved in this. Isn't that great to know? They have meaning. Pray and keep on praying. Your prayers matter. They matter, so pray. Daniel prayed for his people, and God heard, and he responded. Now, next time we meet, we're going to be talking about Daniel prays for his people, part two. He makes his petition to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful today for the word that you've given us, and we thank you that you have given us examples of a man of God praying to God, realizing that what the nation has done has been improper. Lord, help us use that as a model for our lives. Each one of us comes here stained at some way, and that you ask us to come before you and confess our sins. You'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is your promise in 1 John 1.9. Lord, help us to be men and women of God that confess and repent and turn to you. May we not just, be, just play with you a little bit, Lord, and, and pretend that we're confessing and, and really not serious about it. Help us to deal with the issues that have drug us down, that got us to where we are now, that our hearts can be one with yours. Lord, help us to hear your spirit speak to us today. This is the way. Walk in it. Lord, speak to us today, things that you wanted us to hear. Speak to our hearts. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.